in Kansas anymore. Oh, Toto. I don't think we're in Kansas anymore. Toto, I don't think we're in Kansas anymore. Toto, I don't think we're in Kansas anymore. Pick up, Toto, you're not in Kansas anymore. No, Toto, I don't think we're in Kansas anymore. My parents were born in Kansas. <laughs> well, we're not in Kansas anymore. Where are we? Well, we're not in Kansas anymore. Illinois. Not in Kansas anymore. You're in Illinois. Ever have that feeling where you suddenly feel like a fish out of water, like you're not in Kansas anymore? Maybe it's a result of you start a brand new job, and so you realize that there are new rules to your workplace, new policies and procedures. Or maybe you move to a new neighborhood where things are just done differently, and the you know, length of your lawn is supposed to be a certain height, which is one that you're not used to. Or maybe it's something more extreme. Maybe you move to another country, and you realize that now the language and the dress and the, and the customs are just radically different. We all have those moments where we feel like we're just kind of out of step with everything around us, and all of a sudden we, we say, man, I, I feel like I'm not in Kansas anymore. I'm not in that place that, that seems like home to me. That where we find ourselves is in, a, is in a place where the values and the customs and the rules are different, maybe even different from those that we hold dear. See, the reason I bring that up is because it's because, like I said at the beginning of this service, we live in a culture where, where, in a society where many people feel like that on a daily basis. That simply waking up and turning on the news quickly reveals that our society is changing at such a rapid pace that we often feel, just by going out our front door, that we're not in Kansas anymore. I mean, I think about just my own life and how much has changed in just 33 years. I mean, since I was born, these are a couple of things that have happened in the world. The Berlin Wall came down. We put a robot on Mars. The internet was invented. And our definition of marriage was changed. And I could go on and on and on and talk about all the ways over just the past several decades that our culture has, has shifted around us, where our values have shifted, what we hold as sacred is, is, has changed, and what we consider no longer sacred has changed. Um, how we relate to one another has changed our, our norms in, in terms of relationships and conversation, in terms of work and politics, have all begun to shift around us. And the question is, what do we do? Where do we find constancy in a changing world where the culture constantly seems to be in flux and in, in, many, and in many ways in flux in ways that we don't understand and maybe don't even agree with? And so that's really what we're going to be talking about in this series on Daniel. We're talking a little bit about culture and how do we relate to culture and what does the book of Daniel have to teach us? And to define culture for, for just a minute, um, this is one, one way that you can kind of conceive of it. Culture is the characteristics and knowledge of a particular group of people encompassing language, values, religion, cuisine, social habits, music, and the arts. In short, culture is all around us. It influences everything. How we eat, where we eat, what we eat, 
what we see and experience as we walk down the street, what we see and experience and what's communicated on television, what we encounter when we walk through the shopping mall, what our workplaces are like and the values that we find there. In short, cultures all around us. And in every society, there's usually a prevailing culture and then there are subcultures. The prevailing culture kind of is the dominant culture. It sets the rules for everybody else. But then there are subcultures in which communities of people gather and they kind of react to the primary culture in some way, either by embracing it even more or by uh, pushing back against it in some way or, or reinterpreting and redefining it. And culture is one of those things that it's just, it's just kind of out there and, and it can be a good thing or it could be a bad thing. But the question that we often ask in our society today as culture is shifting constantly is, is where do I stand in relationship to that prevailing culture and how do I navigate a world that's constantly changing? Especially for those of us who are part of the Christian subculture. That there are many in the Christian subculture who are looking at the, at the predominant culture, the prevailing culture, and they're saying, wow, there are things going on in our society and in our world that I just don't agree with anymore. And how do I navigate that? How do I hold true to what I believe in a world that is constantly changing? Now, there are two reactions, two common reactions that many people in the American church have when it comes to addressing our primary culture. One is, is when the primary culture seems to be at odds with what we hold dear, we kind of stick our heads in the sand about it, right? We say, oh man, the culture is just going to hell in a handbasket. I don't want to have to deal with it. I'm going to go over here. I'm going to spend time with Christians and hopefully the broader society will just leave us alone and we'll keep doing our thing. I don't really care about what's going on over there. I just, I want to have my bubble. This is my safe spot. The other reaction that we have is we say, no, we're going to take back the culture. And so we start to get into these culture wars and we start to fight over those values and over those messages. But the problem with a war is that bullets are usually involved, that shots are often fired. And sometimes when we engage in the culture war, we end up shooting the people that we're trying to reach. That by engaging in the fight... We actually end up pushing away the very people that God has called us to reach with the message that we hold to be true. And so the question is, is how do we as Christians live in our culture today? What posture should we have? And the answer that we get from Scripture is one that we read a little bit earlier on in our service from 1 Peter chapter 2. He says, Dear friends, I urge you as foreigners and exiles to abstain from sinful desires which war, wage war against your soul, to live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day that he visits us. See, the first thing Peter says is he says we should live as exiles. We have to recognize that it's not our home anymore, that that's okay but then what I love about his response is he pushes back against the head in the sand or the culture war motifs. He says, rather, we are to live good lives among those who don't share our same basic values, that they may see those good lives and glorify God. And in fact, if you were to read on in 1 Peter 2, verse 15 and following, he then says that our lives are not just to be lives of goodness, but they're to be lives of respect. Lives of humility, lives of boldness and courage, yes, 
but lives that ultimately respectfully and humbly point people to God. That's the calling that Peter gives us. So the question is, okay, that's, that's nice. Practically, what does that mean? How do we live as exiles in our world today? That's the reason why we're doing this whole series in the book of Daniel. Because as we take a look at Daniel's story, what we realize is that Daniel's story helps us understand how to bring a redemptive influence to a society whose, whose culture and values are increasingly different from our own. Daniel's story helps us understand what it means to bring a redemptive influence to a society whose culture and values are increasingly different from our own. See, that's the posture Peter calls us to. He says, we are to bring redemptive influence. Jesus puts it this way. He says, you are to be salt and light. Salt and light in a rapidly changing world. And so what we're going to be doing over the next three weeks is we're going to be looking at Daniel's story. And we've entitled this series Life in Babylon because what we're going to learn as we look at Daniel's story is that he is relocated from his home to the city of Babylon, a place that is radically different from where he was raised. But through him, we're going to see in surprising ways what it means to be a redemptive influence. But before we even dive into Daniel chapter 1, I think it's only right that we take a moment to allow God to prepare our hearts and our minds to receive the message that he has for us this morning. So would you please bow your heads and pray with me? Let's pray together. Lord God, we give you thanks that you have set aside this time and this space to meet with us. That you, Holy Spirit, are here in our midst, desiring to teach us your ways desiring to remind us of who we are and of the calling we have in the world. And so, Lord, we ask that you would give us eyes to see, ears to hear, open hearts and minds to receive your message this morning. And, Lord, I pray that the words that I speak and the thoughts that we think together would be pleasing in your sight, O God, who is indeed our rock and our redeemer. Amen. So if you have your Bibles with you, I want you to go ahead and open up to Daniel chapter 1 with me because we are going to be looking at big chunks of this text over the next three weeks, and I want you to notice some details. And if you're using the Pew Bible, you can actually find Daniel chapter 1 on page 737 in the Pew Bible, or you can just queue it up on your smartphone or your own Bible, whatever you have with you. But let's open up to Daniel chapter 1. Daniel chapter 1 actually begins with Daniel having kind of a cross-cultural experience. But this is not a safe cross-cultural experience. It's not a pleasant cross-cultural experience. It's actually a very violent and terrifying cross-cultural experience. This is how the book of Daniel opens. It says that in the third year of the the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. Daniel's cross-cultural encounter comes at the tip of a sword. You see, he had been living in Judah. He was a part of the nobility of the Israelites living in Jerusalem. And now Babylon, the military might of of the world in that day, has come against them in war. Babylon has come. King Nebuchadnezzar is laying siege to Jerusalem. This is the first time that he does it. The second time he does it, he ends up actually crushing crushing Jerusalem flat. But in this first siege, what he ends up doing is he ends up uh, defeating the city, defeating their armies, and he ends up carrying their nobility off into exile in Babylon. 
See, this was, this was a common practice for Nebuchadnezzar, that he would go and he would take the cream of the crop. And if you were older and a member of the nobility, he would either imprison you or kill you. But if you were younger, if you were Daniel's age, if you were like a teenager, he would actually take you to Babylon to enlist you in his service. Because they believed that the, that the, that the royalty being the better educated, but also being young, could be moldable could be shaped in some way. And so what we learn about Daniel when we begin in his story is that he is brought into a cross-cultural encounter, but done so against his will. He's carried off in chains to the city of Babylon, a city that was far bigger than Jerusalem, a city with different clothing, with different language, with different food, with different government, with different rules, with different regulations, with different kinds of status. And it would have been very easy for Daniel to look at his friends and say, we are not in Kansas anymore. Because they weren't. They weren't in Jerusalem anymore. They weren't in their homeland anymore. And and they have to now figure out how are we going to navigate this new world that we find ourselves in. But furthermore, what we realize as well is if we look at some of the details of Daniel's story is that he and his friends are actually forced to undergo enculturation. They don't have the option of forming a counterculture. They don't have the option of becoming a subculture. That because they are now being enlisted into the king's service, he wants to shape them in just the right way. First thing he does is he removes them from their home, which we've already talked about. And this would have been traumatic for them. They probably would have seen family members and close friends either carried off into slavery or killed in front of their very eyes. They have no option of going back to Jerusalem. They can't go home. There's no ruby slippers for them to tap their heels together and and be transported back to someplace safe. They are stuck. But then as we go a little bit further, we read some other things that they're forced to undergo. Verse 4, it says that um, they are required to learn the language and the literature of the Babylonians. Means that they are forced to learn a new language. They're not allowed to speak in their mother tongue anymore. They need to learn the language and the literature of the Babylonians. They have to learn their customs and their ways of doing life. They have to learn their stories and their myths, their philosophy and their law. Furthermore, we learn that they are now made dependents of their new master. It says in verse 5 that the king assigned them a daily amount of food and wine from the king's table. Now this, again, cross-cultural experience, right? Because probably the food that they're being fed is going to be food that they weren't raised with. Some different dishes, some different meals. But also think about the message that's being sent. Basically, they're being told that the only way that you eat is at the pleasure of the king. That the only way you can survive is by taking sustenance from his hand, from his table, And finally, as kind of the cherry on top, we learn that they are given new names. It says that the chief official gave them new names to Daniel. He named uh, him Belteshazzar, to Hananiah Shadrach, to Mishael Meshach, and to Azariah Abednego. And this is significant for a variety of reasons. First and foremost, Hebrew scholars looking at Daniel's name and the name of his three friends have noted that their Hebrew names all pointed to the relationship that they had with God. Daniel's own name means that that God is my judge. Mishael means that God is gracious. 
See, they each had their names reflected who they are, the relationship that they had with the God of the universe. But now they've been given new names. And again, language scholars have looked at this and they've kind of debated the translations a little bit. But the one thing that they're unanimous on is that all of these new names, Belteshazzar, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, now point to pagan deities, to Babylonian gods. They're basically saying, you don't have a relationship with your god anymore. You now have to relate to our gods. You are their servants. Think about this. Let's take this whole picture together for just a moment. Here they are away from home, new language, new customs, food from the king's table with brand new names. The overall message that they are being given by Nebuchadnezzar and by the people of Babylon is that we own you. And who you are and where you come from and how you talk and what you're used to wearing and what you like to eat and the God that you worship, they don't matter to us. You live and you serve at our pleasure. See, this is an attempt to mold and to shape their identity in a new way. That's what this forced enculturation was all about. It was to reshape their identities. To take these young men and to make them in Nebuchadnezzar's image so that they would serve him and serve his court. And that's and, and while we, don't, we do not experience that level of forced enculturation today, the reality is, is that culture does influence us. That the messages that we're bombarded with on a daily basis at work, on television, on the radio, um, you know, where we play, where we eat, all these things can shape and challenge our identity in some pretty profound ways. They can shape and challenge us in ways that can not only get us to value different things, but to actually forget who we are and where our primary identity is truly found. And so the question is, is if we are called to bring redemptive influence to the culture, how do we do that when there are all these forces and pressures weighing on us and trying to shape us in a different way? Well, again, I think Daniel chapter 1 is a really great place to look. Because for Daniel, he decides to pick one thing as the place where he's going to reassert who he is. There's this wonderful little word that every time you come across it in Scripture, you should pay attention. The word is but. Okay, it's, it's really simple. You guys thought I was going to give you a Hebrew word, didn't you? The word but says, but Daniel resolved not to defile himself with the royal food and wine. And he asked the chief official for permission not to defile himself in this way. When the king comes and says, hey, the food that you require to survive, you are going to eat from my hand. Daniel says, uh-uh. says, no, I'm not going to defile myself in that way. Now, again, we have to do a little bit of unpacking. Some, some biblical scholars have looked at this and they've said, well, the reason Daniel chooses this thing is because of the fact that, that as Israelites, they would have had very strict dietary laws. They would have been expected as Jewish people to keep kosher. That meant that there were certain foods that God said, these are clean and okay for you to eat, and then there are these other foods that are unclean. They're not okay for you to eat. And so they think, well, maybe Daniel is keeping kosher, right? But I don't think so. I don't think that's all that Daniel is doing because notice what Daniel suggests. He says, hey, I don't want to eat this food. And, and the, the chief official says, well, if you guys don't eat this food, you know, you're going to look malnourished. And if you look malnourished in front of the king, that's on me. 
The king could have my head. And Daniel says, well, I'll tell you what, give us vegetables and water and test us for 10 days. Daniel says, I- I'll take the fruit plate. Okay, I'll-, I'll eat that. And this is more extreme than kosher. This is more extreme than kosher because, see, if he just wanted to keep kosher, he could have said, all right, well, bring food from the king's table and we'll take a look at it and we'll say, that's clean, that's unclean, we'll eat the clean food and we'll leave the unclean food over here. But no, he goes all the way because I think what Daniel is doing is he's not simply trying to keep kosher, he's trying to make a statement. He's making a statement about where his identity is truly found. Basically, with a message that he wants to send in a very humble and respectful way is that, King Nebuchadnezzar, I don't live based on what I eat from your hand. For I have another king who provides for my daily needs. I have a king who will feed me in ways that you can't even fathom. See, Daniel picks one thing. One thing that demonstrates where his identity is really found because Daniel knew something about the God that he worshipped. He knew that his God was a God who keeps his promises. You see, in Daniel's day, there was a prophet named Jeremiah. And before Babylon came to Jerusalem, Jeremiah was warning the people. He said, you've been influenced by the cultures around you. And if you don't stop, you are going to be judged. He says, you've been influenced by the religions around you. You've been sacrificing your children to idols. And if you don't stop, you will be judged. And they didn't listen. They allowed themselves to be influenced by the cultures around them rather than being salt and light. And the result is they're now carried off into exile. But then after they go off into exile, God sends them other words through Jeremiah, including this beautiful passage from Jeremiah 29, 11. This is what he says. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans to prosper you and not to harm you. Plans to give you hope and a future. God is saying that even when you go into exile, I will provide for you. That even in the heart of Babylon, I am there and I will give you hope and a future. I will sustain you. And Daniel says, I know that my God is faithful to do this, so test us for 10 days. Test us for 10 days and we will see that God can provide in ways you can't imagine. And so the, the, the court official agrees. He says, deal, we'll try this test. And what I just love about this is what ends up happening. We read uh, in our reading for this morning, it kind of puts it a little mildly. It says, that, um, it says that he tested them for 10 days. And at the end of 10 days, they looked healthier and better nourished than any of the young men who ate the royal food. But if you actually get into like the original language here, I think the ESV does a better job. The ESV says that at the end of 10 days, they were better in appearance and fatter in flesh than all the youths who ate the king's food. It says that they got chunky, okay? Now, I don't know how after 10 days of just eating vegetables and drinking water, you get fat, okay? I I believe, unless they're lying, that when you say you're going to go on the paleo diet, you're supposed to lose weight. And And yet, that's basically what they do. And at the end of 10 days, they're fat. Now, unless marshmallows and donuts grow on trees... And that's like a new form of fruits and veggies. Or unless King Nebuchadnezzar had like Willy Wonka's garden in Babylon. I have no idea how this happens unless God is doing something miraculous through their small act of obedience. 
Unless after 10 days, God is sustaining Daniel and his friends miraculously in some way to show that, yes, I do provide for my people even in their captivity. That I will strengthen them in ways that King Nebuchadnezzar could never do. See, Daniel picked this one thing to show where his identity lies and what, and the response from God is God shows, I am faithful to keep my promises. And Daniel and his friends are sustained and to the point where the court official says, very well, you never have to eat from the king's table. You can, you can continue eating this diet. It's a small act. It's a humble act. It's actually a respectful act that still sends a very loud and clear message. My identity and what I count on for my daily sustenance is not given to me by the hands of some pagan king. It's given to me by the God who promised to take care of me. And this small act of obedience to God becomes the bedrock of their entire ministry and life from that point on. Because what we read after this is that God then gives them wisdom and knowledge and understanding of all kinds of literature and learning. That Daniel is actually able to interpret dreams and visions. That he and his friends are better governors and administrators than anybody else. And that when the king talked with them, he found no one was equal to Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. See, God provided for them. It began with this small act of obedience in which they remembered something. Namely, what they remembered is they remembered whose they were. They remembered that God is a God who keeps his promises. And they knew that they were his people, the people that he promised to provide for. You see, when we say, well, what does it mean to bring a redemptive influence to our culture, the first step is to remember whose we are. The first step is to remember that we worship a God who keeps his promises. And this is vitally important for us today because we do live in a culture where things are constantly clamoring for our attention, are constantly competing for our allegiance and for our identity. See, our temptation is to shape our lives around the things that we think are going to give us rewards. You know, we're, we're, we're paid for working hard. We're desired and pursued for our physical beauty or desirability. We're, we're given good grades for studying hard. We're, we're invited to parties for being sociable and so on and so forth. And, and all these things that seek to shape us in a certain way, whether it's as a producer or as a consumer, whether it's for our physical beauty or for our, our social acumen, whatever these things are, we tend to allow it to shape us in a way that we give more of our days and our dollars and our time to them. And slowly but subtly, these messages from the culture of what it means to be successful, what it means to be desirable, what it means to be a person of, uh, worthy of respect and of power, those things start to shape who we are that subtly, slowly we forget whose we belong to. That ultimately our value and our dignity and our identity are gifts given to us by God. And the question we have to ask as we look at our lives is the same question Daniel had to ask What's the one small thing God is asking me to do that will show where my real identity lies? It's the one small thing God is asking me to do to show where my real identity lies. I don't know what that is for you. 
Only you can discern that in prayer. Maybe it's the fact that you've allowed little league games to get in the way of showing up at church. That you've allowed your weekends to cater to the sports cycle and seasons. Maybe it's working instead of spending a couple moments in prayer each day. I don't know what that thing is for you, but the question we have to ask is, what's the one small way, the one small yes that I can give to God that will clearly show where my identity lies, that will point other people to God so that they may glorify him on the day that he visits us? That's the question that Daniel presents to us. But it all starts with remembering whose we are. See, Daniel had a choice between two different tables set by two different kings. He could eat the food from the table of King Nebuchadnezzar, food that, yes, would taste good, but that would ultimately cause him to lose his center, to lose his identity. Or he could choose food from the hand of his king, the Lord. He could choose food from the hand of his God, God who would daily remind him that he's precious in his sight, that would daily remind him that he is with him through every adversity. And that choice, that option, is an option that you have too. Because there, there is a king who has come and set a table for us. It was a table that Jesus set for his first disciples on the night that he was betrayed. It was a meal that we continue to celebrate every time we gather here on Sunday. It's this table. It's the Lord's Supper where we come before this altar and we receive bread and wine from the king's hands. Bread and wine that he says is given for you, my body and my blood, so that you might know that you are forgiven and that you have eternal life. That simply by coming here to this table, we're reminded of who we are. So that even in the moments when we cave to culture, even in those moments where we've forgotten who we are, even in those moments where we've kind of capitulated to the pressure, we can come here and receive from God's hands food that truly nourishes, that truly satisfies, food that reminds us that we are his forgiven and beloved children through Jesus Christ. My question becomes, are we going to keep eating food from the, the kings of this world, dining on the good stuff that they would serve us, but ultimately losing everything? Or, we are, going to, or are we going to come to the one who says, I have given you food and this is for you? We're going to get into other ways that we are called to be a redemptive influence, but it starts here. It starts at this table and remembering whose we are, that we belong to God through Jesus Christ the one who forgives us, died for us, and rose again so that we might have life eternal. That that identity would become the bedrock of every act of obedience from now until he returns. And so it's with that in mind as we think about just that first step that I want to take a moment to pray. Would you please bow your heads and pray with me? Lord God, we give you thanks that in a world that is constantly trying to define who we are, you give us the gift of a meal that solidifies our identity. You remind us that we belong to you, that we are your forgiven and precious children. Lord, with that identity in mind, I do pray that we would go out into the world and we'd ask, what's the one small way today? that I can show where my identity truly lies. Maybe it's in a conversation. Maybe it's in a choice we make. Maybe it's something we say no to or something we say yes to. 
But in all these ways, Lord, may we never forget that who we are is a gift given to us as an act of grace which comes to us from your hands through Jesus Christ our Lord in whose name we say, Amen. Thank you for spending some time in God's Word with us during this message. It was recorded live in worship at Trinity Church in Lyle, Illinois, where God is leading us on our mission to look, live, and love more like Jesus. Would you like to know more about a relationship with Christ or more about Trinity, who we are, what we believe, and where and when you might join us in worship or a growth group? Please visit our website at tlc4u.org. That's the letters T-L-C, the number four, and the letter U.org. May God bless you and yours abundantly through Jesus Christ. Thanks again for listening.